morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. I'm glad that you are here with us here at uh, Calvary. And I um, say, I say we, I'm not really from Calvary here. I'm visiting. My wife is from here. And so uh, we come up and visit. And so I've been able to come up and, uh, and, and fill in a little bit um, while the church is looking for a, for a senior pastor. But I uh, currently live in Ohio and spent the last 15 years in the Middle East living there. And um, so I think that we brought some of the Middle East warm weather with us. So my apologies to you for the, for the, for the warm weather this last week. Um, many of us just celebrated and will probably continue to celebrate uh, our family traditions for Christmas. Probably celebrated them yesterday. We'll probably do it today or this next week. And all of that revolves around the Christmas story. And there are so many different characters within the Christmas story that we can identify with. There's Joseph, who took his wife all the way from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. There's Mary, who knew that she was carrying the Messiah. And there were the shepherds, who left their fields in the middle of the night to go worship the baby. There were the wise men, who searched for the king who was born. And then there was Herod, who wanted to get rid of anyone who he thought might challenge his power. Then there's Gabriel, who appeared to Mary to tell her that she would bear Emmanuel, God with us. I want to read a particular part of the Christmas story, and this is from Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is where we're going to jump off from today. And this is about the angels. It says this, Suddenly... A great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. These are the angels proclaiming to the shepherds in the field that glory to God in the highest heaven. I was reading this passage one year and I was reflecting on the angels and I was imagining how the angels might be feeling as they were proclaiming the biggest news in the history of the world to shepherds. And I imagine some of those angels might have been saying, did, they, did these guys get it? Did they really understand? Man, I know they went off, but did they really understand? You know, why did all of us need to be here? There's a, there's a lot of us, and there's only a couple of guys in the field. Like, why couldn't we have, have done this somewhere else? Isn't there a more effective way to proclaim this? Aren't there more important people to whom we could proclaim it to? Was all this time and energy and hardship to proclaim to so few people worth that impact? Now, I recognize that we don't get this from the text. You cannot read what the angels were feeling in the text. So we can't say that that's what they were saying. But that's not the point. The point is, is that in that moment of reading, I was asking myself, is the work that I have done, is the work that I have done to proclaim the good news to those who have not heard it, has that been effective? Is it worth it? Is all of that time and energy worth it? And that's a question that I want to reflect on today. Is all that worth it? Because a couple weeks ago when I was here, if you were here, when I preached, I spoke about Colossians 4, and during that sermon, I talked about take up the conversation about the mystery of Christ, and I challenged everyone in here to take up that conversation with someone that you know, a neighbor, a friend, a family member. 
And what we're going to do now is we're going to go around and we're going to say who each... No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Someone got real nervous. <clears throat> but if you did that, if you took up that challenge, maybe that conversation didn't go as you hoped it would. Maybe you weren't as articulate as you hoped you would be. Maybe that person didn't respond in the way that you had wanted them to. And you asked yourself, man, was that worth it? I just put part of my reputation on the line. Or there might be some people here who've been sharing the good news of Jesus with someone over many years. Maybe that's a family member, a parent or a child, or a sibling. And despite multiple times of showing love and grace to that person and sharing the gospel with them, they have not responded the way that you would hope they would. Then lastly, there's a lot of us here who are involved in ministry in some ways. Some people are involved in full-time ministry. Some people are involved as uh, volunteers, maybe leading small groups or growth groups or teaching Sunday school. Maybe you've just started getting involved and you shared your faith with someone that you know and you've not yet seen the fruit that you're hoping for. Maybe you ask yourself sometimes, man, is leading this small group every week worth it? Now, if you're in a small group, maybe next week you see your small group leader, just tell them, yeah, it's worth it, just to encourage them. But whatever your role in the proclamation of the gospel and in discipleship, there are times when you're going to ask yourself, is it worth it? Is all of the blood, sweat, and tears, metaphorical, unless you're involved in youth ministry, then that can be literal, but is that worth, is it worth the proclamation of the gospel? Does it matter? that I tell my friend again, did it even matter the first time? Does it matter? And we know what the answer to that question is, right? We know that the answer to that question is yes. It was worth it. It did matter. We know that in our heads, but there are moments or even seasons when we ponder deeply, when we are discouraged and we ask the question, is it worth it? Behind this question is an assumption. The assumption is, is that if there is not fruit, if there's not a response in the time that we want, in the way that we want, that what we're doing is not valuable. It's not good enough. We count the numbers to determine the value of our ministry. We count how many people came to church this Sunday. We count how many people came to my event or my ministry. How many people did we baptize? How many people did we disciple? We count those things. Now, don't get me wrong. I love numbers, Okay. And have you ever heard of the five love languages? Yeah, you've heard of gifts, words of affirmation, touch, time, acts of service. Now, there's a, there's a new research has shown that there is a sixth one. It's called spreadsheets and graphs. <laughs> so I'm all about numbers and counting. So numbers do tell part of the story, and they, are an, they do tell part of the story, and they are an indicator, and they are a way that the Holy Spirit can lead us and speak to us. But we also can't get too caught up in those numbers. We can't get too caught up in them. It becomes a problem when we become the end rather than a way, one way among many that we discern what the Lord is calling us to do. So when we ask this question, is it worth it? We know in our minds that the answer is yes. Even when we're not sure in our hearts that it was worth it. We know this because we know that when God has called us to do something, we are to be obedient to his call. That's a good reason, and sometimes that's where we hold on to. But let me give you two additional reasons why 
we should continue to proclaim the, God, the good news, even when we know it's hard, even when we're not getting a response that we were hoping for. The first one is this. Because God is glorified in the proclamation. And the second reason is this, because we find joy in the proclamation. Let's look at the first one. The first one here. God is glorified in the proclamation of the gospel. So when you shared about Jesus, when you started talking about Jesus and talking about what he does, whether you were talking about gospel stories, gospel witness, the gospel message, the gospel, uh, gospel response, whether, whatever four of those you were engaged in, God was glorified in that. Let's read two passages from the Psalms. Here's the first one. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 6. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. I want to spend a minute thinking about this phrase, the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the heavens declare his righteousness. What are the heavens? Heavens are basically everything in the sky. It's everything that's out there, what we would now call space, outside of the earth. And space is something that I find really fascinating. I'm fascinated by the incomprehensibleness of black holes, galaxies, dark matter, all those things. The excitement of interplanetary exploration, it always intrigues me. And in 2015, I was excited when the first satellites flew up close to the planet Pluto. The planet Pluto. And the pictures were stunning and showing us images that no one had ever seen before. No one had ever seen these pictures before. And then you think more about our solar system and the more stars and planets that are being discovered. In fact, just yesterday, there was a new telescope, the Webb telescope that's going to replace the Hubble telescope that's supposed to take pictures farther and in greater detail than anything that man has been able to see before. And so I'm really excited for those pictures. And there are billions more galaxies and solar systems and planets that we have never seen and probably will never see, definitely in our life, maybe in the existence of man before Jesus comes back. Those heavens declare the glory of God. Now here's a question. If no one observed Pluto up close until 2015, does that mean that Pluto did not bring God glory before that? Pluto was only discovered in the last hundred years. Does that mean that Pluto didn't give glory to God in all of its existence before that? I would suggest that yes, it did. Pluto declared and displayed God's majesty. And Pluto declaring and displaying God's majesty is not dependent on whether or not we see it and respond to it. If the galaxies of the universe proclaim the majesty of God and there is no person to observe it, is God glorified? And the answer is yes. It must be. The heavens, everything that is above, declares his glory. All the planets we've never seen, all the galaxies and other phenomena, all of it displays God's glory. So what does that have to do with the gospel? 
I would suggest this. If the gospel is proclaimed, the love that God has for the world, that he gave his only son, that we only need to believe, if that gospel is proclaimed, God is glorified, even if the people listening do not respond in the way that we would hope. You see, the proclamation of God's love is worth it not because of the fruit that it bears, but because of the one about whom it is heralded is worth that proclamation. There is deep, lasting, and eternal value in that work. So when you proclaim the gospel to your friend in big ways and in small ways, in quiet conversations or a big gathering, and there's not the response that you were hoping for, take heart, because God is glorified in that. Our response, or their response, does not diminish God's glory. So that's the first point. God is glorified in the proclamation. The second one. We find joy in the proclamation. So let's read two more verses here. The first one is from Psalms, chapter 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with, the joy, in your, with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Matthew 13, 44 says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. So what do we learn from these passages? The passage in Psalm says that the Lord fills us with joy. We take joy in the Lord and in the ways that he has taken the deepest concerns, joys, fears, anxieties, and has delivered us from them. We take joy because he has met our deepest needs in our hearts. Matthew suggests that we take joy in the Lord himself. When a person or an object has given us great joy through our experience, we also take delight in the object itself. And so being filled with joy in the experience amplifies our joy in the person of God himself. It's self-reinforcing and self-amplifying. I'm going to give you an example from other parts in our lives. What does that mean for us that we take joy and we want to proclaim it? Well, the reality is, is that we all proclaim things that are of value to us and are of worth to us. Whatever those things are, it can be your favorite sports team or your favorite TV show. Let me tell you the one that we proclaim in our household right now. This is something that we take joy in. In our family, if you ask us about books, there is a particular book that we'll tell you about. And we recently read this series. It's four books called The Wing Feather Saga. And we cannot not tell you about it. And it's interesting, um, if, I, if I mention, because I mentioned this sort of thing in, in a sermon to other churches before, often what happens is that someone else who's also read that will come up to me and, you've read the Wingfeather Saga too? And they get really excited. And they want to come up and then we want to talk about it. Not the kids, like the adults, the dads. But it's, a, it's an amazing series. It's a little bit Princess Bride. It's a little bit Narnia. It's a little bit Lord of the Rings and will tell you about all the characters. Now, if you've never read the books, which I suspect might be many people here, 
What I'm saying to you has no meaning to you. You don't have that experience of having read the Wingfeather Saga, which I think you should. But here's the thing about your response or lack of response to the Wingfeather Saga. I'm not really that concerned about it. I'm going to tell you about this book series whether you're really that interested or not. I'm going to tell you about it even if you don't know how to read. I'm going to tell you about it if you don't even speak English at all. I'm going to continue to tell you about it because your enjoyment and response to my proclamation about this book series has little bearing on the joy that I get from telling you about it. Telling you about this is not about seeing you respond to it. Telling you about it is an overflow of joy from the books that I've read and the story that I've read. And we all have that. That movie, that TV show, that book, that person. So we're, going to pro- we're already going to proclaim stuff. We're already going to proclaim things that we already take joy in. We proclaim that which is already valuable to us, whether it's materially valuable, emotionally valuable, socially valuable, spiritually valuable. So the Lord fills us with joy, and we take joy in beholding the glory of God, and that in turn wells up in us, and we are ready to proclaim the gospel. So proclamation is not really a burden. The proclamation itself brings us great joy. Now, at this point, there might be a few objections from people on this point. The first one is, is that, is this a bribe? We take joy in the Lord. Is this, is this a bribe that God is hanging out in front of us that, look, if, if you do this, then, then you're going to feel really good about it, and that's how he strings people along. And there's, there's, a, and there, and there's, the, the, there's a kernel of truth in that statement, not, not truth in the statement, but the, there's a kernel of truth that people resonate when there is that they, people don't want to be manipulated, right? None of us want to be manipulated into believing this or believing that. But that's not manipulation any more than spending time with my children or my wife brings me joy. We're designed for relationship, and that's a natural outcome of our relationship. Or it's not any different than finding joy in a good meal. The meal is nourishing, and we're designed, it's both nourishing and we're designed to take joy in it. Let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think here is really helpful. He says, We are afraid that heaven is a bribe, and that if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. It is not so. Heaven offers nothing that the mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. There are rewards that do not sully motives. A man's love for a woman is not mercenary because he wants to marry her, nor his love for poetry mercenary because he wants to read it, nor his love of exercise less disinterested because he wants to run and leap and walk. Love, by definition, seeks to enjoy its object. Love, by definition, seeks to enjoy its object, and by enjoyment we demonstrate its worth to us. Taking joy in the Lord results in proclamation. That's the first objection. The second objection that someone might have is that, well, I don't feel that joy when I talk about Jesus. I don't feel that joy when I talk about Jesus. What about me? Let me give you a few reasons why we might not take joy. The first one is this. We might be concerned about what other people will think of us. 
it's really easy for me to proclaim the goodness about a book. Nobody is going to, very few people are going to judge me about reading the Wingfeather Saga. People can read it and like it or not read it and not like it, and nobody really cares. But when you start getting into proclaiming Jesus, now we've stepped into a different area that is more fundamental and core to who we are. And we can be afraid of rejection. And it's rejecting more than just something that we like. The reality is, is that we do live in a climate where not, not, not only, where not, not everyone is going to accept it. And not only that, they might not accept it, they might actually ridicule it. And so we, set, we potentially set ourselves up for conflict when we proclaim. That's a real concern. The second one is this. Maybe there are others who are saying that once I had joined the Lord, but I'm not feeling that lately, I am worn out, I am tired, and I'm discouraged. A third reason might be is that some people are saying, I've never had that deep experience of deep abiding joy in the gospel and in what Christ has done. So what do we do if we're not feeling that deep abiding joy in the Lord? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that our hearts do not, our hearts should not determine the direction of our behavior. When I say heart, I mean, I mean our feelings should not. And here's something that, that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of months, particularly as we've been living in the U.S. the last six months, is how much, how much the question of what makes, me, what, what makes me feel good is, is, direct, is directs people's behavior. What makes me feel good directs people's behavior. The ultimate arbiter of reality and of truth becomes what makes me feel good. Now, I've just said that we take joy in the Lord, and so we are designed to take joy in the Lord's work for us. But there's a difference in that in being rooted in an absolute truth that is separate from us as opposed to my feelings being the reality, being being what, what determines everything that I do. So what do we do when we don't feel that deep abiding joy? And I suggest that fundamentally what we do is we hold on to the truth of Scripture because that's ultimate reality, not our feelings. Our feelings are not necessarily ultimate reality. The truth of Scripture is ultimate reality. <clears throat> but let me get back to this. What do we do when we don't feel that deep abiding joy in the Lord? The first thing I would suggest is that bring to the Lord those deepest cares and needs of your heart. Even though we are not enslaved to those feelings, God does care about that, and He has designed us, He has designed us in part as people who feel. And so, when we are hurt, when we are concerned, when we do care about certain things that we are not, and our needs aren't being met, we can bring that to the Lord. That's the first thing. The second thing is ask the Holy Spirit to give you deep and abiding joy in all circumstances. I think here is where pressing into Scripture and pressing into prayer and to worship is really critical, particularly pressing into the Psalms and praying through the Psalms. Because when we pray through the Psalms, we let the Psalms guide our prayers. Because when we just pray on our own, we start to pray whatever we, we, we think about, whatever we're thinking about, and that's okay, that's good, but the Psalms bring us to pray about things that we wouldn't necessarily think about. 
and we wouldn't necessarily do on our own. And so the, the Psalms act as a guide and a guardrail for us. But press into Scripture, press into prayer, press into worship. Being here is important. Worshiping with your community is important. <clears throat> One of the ways that God meets our needs is through the community around us. Talk to someone about it. Talk to your ABF leader or to your small group leader. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a mentor. Talk to a friend or another ministry leader. Because if you ask, you will receive, and the Lord is faithful to give you the joy that you will seek in him and open your heart to him. The other thing to do is to recount the ways that God has been faithful to you and to your family in the past. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past reinforces our faith of God in the future and fans the flames of joy in our heart. All over the Psalms, the psalmist, the Psalter, is remembering what God had done for Israel up to that point. And in Hebrews, when we read about the heroes of the faith, Part of the purpose of that passage is to say, look what God has done here. Look what he has done here. Look what he has done here. Look what he has done here. Remember all the ways that God was faithful in the past. So remembering the faithfulness of God in our past reinforces our faith and love for God and fans the flame of joy in our heart. And as our delight in the Lord grows, the Lord fills us with joy, we remember the faithfulness of the Lord, and as we take joy in beholding the Lord, the pearl of great price proclamation will become more natural. Not because we feel a particular duty, though duty isn't necessarily a bad thing, but because it becomes a natural response to the joy that we have. And what this tells us is that joy isn't something that we conjure up. Joy isn't something that we generate. Joy is a byproduct of what we have experienced. We don't sit around and say, okay, today I'm going to have joy in watching MSU play. And you kind of try and conjure up that joy, or Michigan, University of Michigan, whichever is your preferred team. But we do it, that joy is a byproduct of what we've experienced. And then moreover, God is glorified when we delight in the Lord, and God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him, and it becomes circular and self-amplifying system. The more we proclaim that which we take joy in, the greater our joy, and the more that we take joy in the proclamation. So the first point that I made today, that God is glorified in the proclamation, is not only true because declaring the glory and majesty of God brings God glory, but our joy in that proclamation brings God glory. So when we're proclaiming the message of the gospel, the more that we are witnessing to people around the impact, about the impact of the gospel in our lives, we take deep and abiding joy in that. And when we take joy in the Lord, we're less concerned about how much fruit we see in the immediate. We take deep and abiding, life-sustaining joy in that proclamation. Now, I'm going to go to the conclusion. I started this story talking about angels. We don't know what they felt after that night outside the fields of Bethlehem. 
But I do know that engaging in taking up the conversation can sometimes be hard. So if you're here today and you are discouraged because that proclamation, however big or small, however bold or quiet, is not producing the fruit that you were hoping for, I'm here to say to you, take heart. There is glory and great worth in that proclamation that you have been a part of. And I encourage you to take joy in that proclamation. Take joy in the story that you are telling. And let the Lord's faithfulness refresh your heart.